0: Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, and he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the end of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, kings of the earth, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Uh, We start worship this week recognizing that the nations are raging. And that is true in our day and age um, almost all the time. But the events of this week have been a little bit more in our face in a world of social media and and immediate internet access Many walk in with with a heavy heart because they've seen more than they're used to seeing in terms of how a war takes place and unfolds in Russia and Ukraine. It's something that many are asking about, many are praying about. And today we had a plan to have our Romania team that was there the last week of December and the first week of January come up and give a report on the time they had there. But they asked me late last night to actually readjust And I have a special time of prayer for Ukraine and the situation in Eastern Europe. And here's part of the reason why it's so near and dear to us here. Um, Kluz, where our team was, is less than 200 kilometers from the Ukrainian border. And I have a picture that it's not going to show up on the live stream, but you in the room will see it. Um, This is a picture of Ukrainian refugees gathered in Logos Church in Kluz, and uh, Emmy Kura, who is the pastor of Jeneza Church, one of the churches that we sponsor and partner with, there um, they are partnering with this church, Logos Church, to then house these refugees. And um, so we have two two ministry partners inclusion of poca. One is Emmy and his church, Geneza, The other, Doni Grian and his church, Rainastria. We also um, serve alongside um, Mike and Kelly Maney, who are in Budapest, Hungary, who's about three hundred. Kilometers from the Ukrainian border, and over the last few days, each of these ministry partners that are a part of our ministry here, that we partner with over there, um, they have asked us for for prayers as they navigate these changing times in their countries. Um, they're not in Ukraine, but they have been flooded with Ukrainian refugees and opportunities to minister and to serve on the front lines of this new refugee crisis over there. And so um, right now, as I understand it, Emmy is on his way to pick up some families from the border and bring them back, and two two families will be staying in their home. Twenty families will be housed amongst the church in total, and Donnie is doing similar things through his church. And so I'm going to open us in a just special time of prayer for this crisis, but also as our church body thinks about this, and as you see the news unfolding, and as you are praying and discussing with your family, I want us to remember that we have have three partnership families that are, that are there in a very close setting uh, ministering to those that are fleeing. And um, remember that in your prayers. I'll also say to parents, there is a resource out in the gym on one of the tables here about praying with your family about Ukraine and about the situation there. So if you want a guide, even if you have older kids, this is kind of written for younger kids, but um, anyone can, can grab one of these. And um, Rika compiled it from a resource that was online. Um, my kids came home asking lots of questions and not having a lot of answers. And uh, so it's something that is good for us to be reminded that we need Him, that we really do need the Lord. Every single hour. So let's go before him in prayer. Father, I lift before you the nation of Ukraine and the nation of Russia and all of those surrounding nations that are um, a part of this as well. Father, I pray for the people of Ukraine that are fleeing, that are running, and um, trying to get to safety in Poland and Hungary and Romania and other places. I praise you for the um, open doors that many, including many believers, have swung wide their doors open to these families in crisis. And Father, I pray that there will be rest and comfort for the sojourner, for the, the um, refugee in these settings. God, I pray for, for, um, specifically for Rhaenostria Church and Geneva Church and Logos Church, the church we see in our picture Pray specifically for those churches as they gather supplies, gather resources, make lists of, of refugee families and homes, and then make trips to the border to pick up. Um, Father, it, it was such a joy, a, a challenge, but also a joy to hear that the traffic is not just jammed coming out of the Romanian border, but actually Romanians running to the border to help. There's traffic jams of people that are waiting in line to pick up refugees to help and to serve those in crisis. And Father, I praise you for that. I praise you for your church in Romania um, acting in faith and acting in love, demonstrating your love to those in crisis. Um, I pray for Emmy even now as he is traveling and for Nadia as she helps coordinate supplies and for uh, Donnie as he leads not just a church but a humanitarian organization in Eche Homo. Um, Father, I pray that um, those families would walk wisely and would know um, how to open their doors well to meet the needs that come. I pray for the families that are leaving Ukraine behind and many of them leaving behind Um, fathers and grandfathers and brothers as men are staying to fight and women and children are escaping. Uh, Father, Father, I pray for peacefulness at the border as many are trying to collect bribes in order to just let somebody leave. Father, I pray against that. I pray that there would be peacefulness in those transitions. I pray for safety for all those that are fleeing and some getting into vehicles with people from other countries that they've never met before. I pray for your protection for those. Father, for those um, armed forces in the conflict in Ukraine on both sides, Father, I do pray for peace and your protection. As, Father, everyone engaged in this conflict is a human being that has been created in your image. And none are beyond the, the reach of your salvation through Jesus. And so, Father, I pray for your presence in the decision makers and in the soldiers. I pray for your wisdom. Father, I pray for hearts to change. I pray for the church in Russia as they navigate their difficult path now. As many Christians have been imprisoned in Russia for their protests, for, for speaking out against the government actions, Father, I pray wisdom for them. I pray wisdom for the Ukrainian church leaders and ministry leaders that um, many are choosing not to leave simply so they can minister to those who stay. Um, Father, this... This is a reminder to us that left to our own devices, we um, fallen humans who inhabit a fallen world can make a real mess of things. But, Father, we, we need you. And, and, God, we are easy in our privileged position here to forget this in times of relative peace and relative safety. And, Father, every believer in Ukraine knows firsthand right now, how badly they need you and they need your miraculous protection and provision. And Father, we are in no more secure a, a situation either, because Father, ultimately, if we saw with spiritual eyes, we would see that we are engaged in a deep conflict as well. And the Father, we need you every hour, whether we realize it or not. And so use these crises to remind us, Father, of how deep and real our need truly is. Use these crises to remind us of how urgent our task and our mission is. That when we say we as a church want to glorify you by making disciples in all nations, Father, help us to really mean it. And to count the, count the cost and to actually live and work in that mission. Father, I praise you that right now, we as a little church in northwest Georgia can know by name three families that are ministering on the front lines of this crisis. And Father, we know by extension many more families, even many more families in Russia and Ukraine that are ministering for the sake of your gospel. Thank you for the connection that the kingdom of Christ brings, that the family of Jesus brings together. So Father, we don't just pray for people on the other side of the world. We pray for family members on the other side of the world, for brothers and sisters in crisis who are hurting. Father, call us to be hands and feet for you in these days. Give us wisdom as we speak of these situations to our own children, to our own families. May our words be wise, and may we live as your ambassadors, and may we all have greater confidence and trust in you. Father, our team of four was there just a couple months ago to encourage the beginning of an evangelistic movement in Cluj-Napoca. Last week, 70 believers from five different churches in Cluj-Napoca were gathered not to discuss refugee crisis or war in Ukraine, but to discuss the the. The expanding of your kingdom includes through evangelism, through sharing the gospel, and through being intentional in individual believers in Romania sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And there was a great group of people gathered in that city last week along those lines. And now, Father, the doors have swung open for travelers from a foreign land to come, to come with little hope in this world with what hopes they had in this world dashed apart. And Father, I pray that your church opens her doors with a love that only you can give to proclaim the good news of your kingdom. So Father, I do pray. I pray for Mike and Kelly, for Donnie and Donna, for Emmy and Nadia, and for all those who serve you in those areas. Father, use them. And here, as we watch from afar, And as we are dismayed and shocked and surprised by what we see, give us hearts that retain the hope we have in you. May the crises of the world lead us to cry out, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because peace on earth is only available because you have established it by conquering our greatest enemy. And so the gates of hell will not withstand the expanse of your church. Jesus, we believe that. And we ask that you would continue that ministry and you would continue that expansion in our days and we would be surprised by what we see. But Jesus, we also long for the day when there will be no more tears. There will be no more wars. There will be no more disease. Because you will return and fully consummate your eternal kingdom where we can live in right fellowship in the fullness of your presence forever. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And while we wait, we trust you as we live as your kingdom citizens today. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, and please continue to pray and continue to, as we sang this morning, when we fight, we fight on our knees, um, trusting in hope within the God that um, rescues us. A few announcements before we go into Luke chapter 19. Tonight is our congregational meeting. And so at 5.30 tonight, um, we will gather in the gymnasium, which is right over there. If you are bringing food or if you are uh, one of our youth that are serving, our youth are serving the food tonight, um, be here at 5.15. If you're a youth or if you are bringing food, everybody else come. Dinner will start at 5.30. We'll eat together, and then the um, families uh, will—the kids will go upstairs, and we'll have the meeting a little bit after that. The meeting will probably start around 6.15-ish, but we'll all stay— Um, in that room. Um, Also uh, on Saturday, March the 5th, this coming Saturday, is a game day also in our building 3 to 5 p.m. on March 5th. Anybody is welcome to that. It's hosted by one of our life groups who just wants to take an opportunity to strategically invite other people in the church in and to get to know other people within the church family. Um, The new members information class is the following day, March 6th. It's a lunch right after church and anybody is welcome to that. Um, March 12th, This is the last week to sign up for March 12th, Rebuilding Hope, our work day in the community on March the 12th. Um, There's a sign-up sheet out in the gymnasium for that as well. And so please, please, please sign up. um, Tell us what you can do. That will also be there tonight if you want to sign up tonight. And lastly, we have a men's ministry event on March the 20th, and that will be a lunch after church. Um, uh, after the 10.30 service, about 12.30 or so, we'll probably get started with that. But that is Sunday, March the 20th. So men, make a note of that, and I'll get you some more details as they come out. Um, I'll also tell you, we've, we've got a pretty full house in here. We've got people gathered in the gymnasium, too. So if it gets, if it gets too warm and you want to move into the gymnasium, that, that's okay. Um, we have a screen set up in there. I know it's, it's pretty full in here right now. But let's open up to Luke chapter 19, and we'll start in verse 28 this week, and we'll talk about Christ's kingdom. We just said, we just discussed, and we just prayed about the fact that in our day, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. And and even in this last year, you think about the the media is so obsessed with Ukraine right now. And so that's right in our faces because it's so pressing. And and we live in such an odd time in human history in that because of social media and the Internet, we can see these things unfolding in real time. And we know here when bombs are going off there because we can automatically, we can immediately see photos and videos Um, from what is happening over there. So it's a weirdly odd time to see kingdoms rise and fall. But it's not just Ukraine. We've prayed in, in our services in the last year about all of the events that have transpired in West Africa and in Burkina Faso in particular where there is a, a president that's been deposed there, and the military took over in the last six months. There's been an incredible famine there. There's been incredible uh, jihadist movements there in, throughout many countries in West Africa, leading people to feel unsafe and actively be at risk every single day. And it was just last year, too, that we saw the, the fall of Afghanistan and the Taliban rush in. And that happened so, so quickly. And we're just reminded as we watch the news, as we trace current events, that human kingdoms rise and they fall. And there's conflict at all times, whether it's front page news or not. But there's always some kingdom raging, some government conflict, some armed uprising somewhere in the world at all times and it can be so discouraging it can be so dismaying to watch and see how it transpires in Luke 19 you have this subtle this subtle entrance of a king who claims authority establishes authority in a in a, in a kingdom which already has a king a new king coming into a kingdom that actually kind of has multiple kings. It's a really complex structure in early Israel and the Roman Empire because the emperor called himself emperor, and he lived in Rome. He didn't live in Jerusalem. But the emperor wanted to pacify a certain group of Jews, and so he put a king in Jerusalem. Now, just so you know, uh, if you're a king that works under the emperor, you're not really a king in the truest sense, and that was was Herod in first-century Israel. But there was a king in Jerusalem, his name was Herod, there was an emperor in Rome, there was a governor who was in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' death, Pontius Pilate, that the king actually served under the Roman governor, and then you have Jesus. And in Luke 19, here comes Jesus coming in, being worshipped as king, and clearly in his actions, claiming himself to be king. He is setting up the circumstances himself to claim his royal authority in Luke 19. And so, what what is truly going on in Israel in 33 AD? Who, Who is the king? Who is really in charge here? Well, we'll read the passage in Luke 19, 28. But what I want us to see here is when we talk about Palm Sunday, that's the passage we're reading, is the Palm Sunday passage that we're all probably familiar with. But the story's not just about Jesus entering into the gates of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. There's, there's three parts to this story that all flow together in Luke 19. It's the king entering into his city. But it's also the king weeping over his city. and It's also the king, what happens, we see when the king actually walks into his house within that city. So Luke 19, verse 28, is where we'll start for the day. When Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Just to stop right there and remind us where we were last week, the things that he said were in Zacchaeus' house in Jericho. So Jericho is about a day's journey from Jerusalem. It was his last long stop before entering into Jerusalem. And so we have the connection between 27, our passage for last week, and 28, our passage for this week. Jesus is sitting in, in Zacchaeus's house in Jericho. He stands up and says, okay, let's go to Jerusalem. Verse 29, When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, two small villages at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples But then some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones themselves would cry out. So what do we see happening here? Uh, As I said, Jericho is the last major stop. Bethphage and Bethany are two little villages in between Jericho and Jerusalem as you come down the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. Jesus has a big group of people that are following him. And this big group of people has seen some incredible things over the last few days, but certainly over the last few years. They have seen miracles. They have seen Jesus heal. They have seen Jesus heal sickness. They've seen Jesus cast out demons. They've seen Jesus cause blind men to see. They've seen Jesus raise people from the dead. They've seen him miraculously feed crowds. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him control the wind and the waves. And they've heard all of his teaching along the way too. And here we get the crescendo. Here we get this point of maximum energy and excitement from the followers of Jesus. Why? Because he's coming home. Because they, they're finally getting to the point where they recognize this is not just a teacher. This is, Jesus is more than rabbi. And Jesus has now been identified a couple of times as Messiah by those that follow him. And they're starting to see this is the Messiah, this is the king who comes in the line of David, and now he's coming into Jerusalem and nothing is ever going to be the same. And they're right but they don't know how Jesus is going to do it. And they're continually surprised. Every single step of the way, the disciples are surprised. And, and it's a lesson for us, because God never really operates the way we would expect him to either. God doesn't work on our timelines. God doesn't work according to our expectations. And the things that God, that God does or God allows, they can be surprising, frustrating, dismaying. But here we see that Jesus... Even when his disciples are surprised at his actions, even when they can't anticipate what comes next, Jesus is acting in full intention all the way through here. He knows exactly what he's doing. And you see it first with the donkey. Now in Luke's story, Luke uses the word colt to refer to the fact that this is a a young donkey. But this is is a donkey. Each of the Gospels actually tell this story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the final time before the crucifixion on a donkey. And there's a reason for it. And Jesus is not just accidentally picking some random animal. And so first, as we start unpacking this passage, we're going to look at what the donkey tells us about Jesus. Because what the donkey says is that Jesus is the king. And that might surprise you. What does a donkey have to do with being king? But in David's day, it was traditional. It was customary for kings to ride in on a donkey as a part of David's reign and in David's period of history. Now, after that, donkeys kind of fell out of style because donkeys aren't as big as horses. They're not as strong as horses. They're not as fast as horses. And what's a king going to do? A king is always trying to establish himself as strong and powerful. So in one period of history, the period in which David reigned, donkeys were a sign of royalty. Donkeys were the sign that the person sitting on the donkey is the king. But then that gave way over time to bigger, stronger animals. And horses. In Jesus, or in, and kings in Jesus' day preferred horses. But you've also probably seen something or read something from ancient kingdoms, and you know that sometimes ancient kings, they liked elephants. They like to, to bring out the biggest, baddest animal they could find to establish their strength and their power. Or sometimes kings would not even ride in on an army they, or on, a, on an animal. They would ride in with their servants carrying them. And you'd have a platform on poles where the king would be raised up above the people. That's intentional. The king would be raised up above the people, and people would be carrying the king in. Or there would be a long carriage with mighty, strong horses that are carrying in, and they're escorted by big, strong elephants. And kings in ancient times would do everything they could to establish and proclaim their strength. So in David's time, a donkey meant king. But by the time Jesus came around, donkeys had fallen out of favor as a royal symbol And you had other animals to show more strength. And so just the fact of riding on a donkey, the people in Jerusalem saw it, and they saw what he was doing. And they called him king because they knew that for him to ride on a donkey meant that he was proclaiming himself to be a king like David. To be not a modern king, not a trendy king that's bringing in big horses and elephants and whatever, but an old-style king, a king of old like David, that would sit on the throne of David, establish the rule and reign of David again. Jesus is a throwback king by riding a donkey. But beyond that, he's also a humble king. Because it's not just what donkeys used to represent in Davidic times, it's also what, Jesus, what donkeys represented in Jesus' time. And for Jesus to ride a donkey in his time was a symbol of humility, a symbol of lowliness. Zechariah predicts it in Zechariah 9.9 to connect Jesus riding in on a donkey with his gentleness. He describes the Messiah as entering in gentle and riding on a donkey. So in this one action, Jesus looks ahead and says, says to his disciples, go into the next town, go into Bethphage, and you're going to find a donkey there. And go to the owners and tell the donkey, the Lord needs the donkey. And they're going to give you that donkey. Because Jesus knew exactly who the donkey was and exactly who the owners were. And whether that's because Jesus had been there before or because Jesus was God himself and just knew things, we don't actually know. But Jesus knew where the donkey was, knew that the owners would give up the donkey freely, and he knew that that donkey was the exact perfect ride that Jesus needed to enter into the capital city of his eternal kingdom. Because the new heavens and the new earth, the new eternal kingdom, will be established in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem retains some, some significance and importance, not just in the first century, but in the eternal kingdom. And so Jesus is not accidental in anything he's doing here. He is proclaiming himself to be king. He is establishing his humility. He is fulfilling prophecy in Zechariah. And he is also, he is also proclaiming his loneliness in that he doesn't even own the donkey, but he has to borrow the donkey to enter in to this incredible moment, this, this debut moment where Jesus the King is on full display. And, and the paradox of the character of Jesus is just on display all throughout this passage. Because Jesus is the God of the universe that owns everything. So it's, it's totally his donkey to claim. But Jesus, Jesus is also the one who comes as a servant to seek and to save that which was lost. And he comes as a servant riding on a lowly donkey that he borrows. And this whole story displays the picture of Jesus. But our goal for today is to understand not just who the king is, but then to understand our response to the king. So the donkey helps us to see Jesus is claiming himself as king. But what do we see from the people themselves? The people show us how to respond to a king. First, we see that the disciples, not just the 12, but the whole group of disciples. Remember, there were hundreds of disciples that were following Jesus around every day at this point. And so as he's entering into Jerusalem, he's riding on a donkey, and the people get it. This is when you know that the Israelites knew something about donkeys and the royal uh, symbolism going on here. Because what Jesus is doing in riding the donkey and proclaiming himself to be king, his disciples see it. Because as he's walking down that hill of the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem on the donkey, the disciples lose their minds in a good and beautiful way. And they're not just protecting Jesus from getting dirty by putting their cloaks on the donkey so that Jesus doesn't get the hair of the donkey on himself. They're actually throwing their cloaks into the dirt to protect the path of the donkey. And there is a great demonstration there as you do that, as a king is entering into town. That is your way of saying, everything I have is at your disposal. I'm literally offering the shirt off of my back to the king to enters into the, t- into the kingdom to take power. I'm offering the shirt off my back as a way of demonstrating I give everything to the service of the king. I'm turning over all my resources, all of my abilities, all of my clothing. Everything that I own is yours. That's the proclamation of the disciples, just in laying a coat in the dirt. So how do you respond to a king? First, you, you give up everything. When a true king shows up, that king has ultimate authority. That king has ultimate claim to not just what he owns in his kingdom, but the the goods and the services of the entire kingdom. And so we are called as servants of the king, as citizens of the eternal kingdom, to give up everything for the sake of following Jesus. It's been such a theme all the way through Luke. We keep saying, follow me. That's what Jesus says. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means give up everything. And here's another demonstration of it. But the people aren't just giving up everything as they're following Jesus into the city. They're also praising Him. And they're praising Him with a a great degree of truth and awareness of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament scriptures and, and worship. But also just, they know who He is. And the words that they say in worship to Him, they know exactly who He is. And they know who He is so well that they're actually misquoting Scripture to worship Him. And and what I mean by that is Psalm 118.26 is misquoted here in the Gospel of Luke. Why? Because they recognize that they now have enough awareness of the revelation of who Jesus is to replace a pronoun with who Jesus is as the King. Psalm 118.26 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And maybe some were singing that. In fact, that's what, what John records them as singing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But, but Luke shows that some were not just singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. To make no mistake about what they thought of him at that point, they used this worship song from Scripture, and they specified the he to say, this guy is the king. Because what was Psalm 118.26 originally used for? So it's a Hallel Psalm, and Psalm 113 to 118 is this specific section of the Psalms called Hallel Psalms, and Hallel is actually half of the word hallelujah. And they're worshipful songs. They're sung at two festivals in particular, the Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles. And they're worship songs to God. They're praise songs to God. But The blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is can be sung as a blessing over your brother as you both come in the name of the Lord into the temple to worship. So blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is not a is not a statement of kingship or messiahship or or savior or anything like that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the Jews used to say, blessed are any of us as we enter into the temple to to offer sacrifices in the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. So for the people to then specify that and use that, that old ancient worship song that they all knew by heart and say, blessed is this guy that comes in the name of the Lord because he's not just coming to worship like we are, he's the king and we're coming to worship him. And so there's a, there's a different degree of understanding and clarity in their worship here because they're getting it. That's why I say this is the crescendo where all the emotion bubbles over in the disciples' following of Jesus. There's so much emotion and excitement and praise, and they're just singing their, their guts out on the way into Jerusalem that day, throwing their coats on the, on the dirt, ready for Jesus to take the throne ready to see Herod fall. He was not a good dude. And they were ready for him to be gone. They were ready for the Roman soldiers to be out. And who knows what every individual disciple was thinking on that day, but they sure weren't thinking the next six days would would pan out the way they did. Because this is Palm Sunday. This This is only a few days before Jesus would eventually go to the cross. So all of Luke 20 through 24, that all happens in one week. And so as we're, we're going to unpack this for the next two months here, as we un- unpack 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, it's going to take us a couple months to get till Easter as we unpack these passages. But remember, all of this happens in one single crazy week, a week that changed human history. So when I say the people were praising, I mean they were praising him as king. There's another misquoted song of Scripture in that one song that they sing, in verse, in verse 38, it's crazy to think about this, but um, Psalm 138, the first phrase saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a, that's a revised quote. We won't say misquote. We'll say revised quote of Psalm 118.26. But then they revise another song, and maybe you've heard it before. Look at the second half of verse 38. Peace and heavy in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Luke actually records that song, except when Luke records the song, it's peace on earth. It's glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's the angel song to the shepherds on the hillside outside of Bethlehem. But it's it's singing about glory to God in the highest, which is what the people are singing on the way to Jerusalem that day. But instead of singing peace on earth as the angels sang to the shepherds, these people are singing peace in heaven. And I believe what what is happening here is that they are recognizing that the peace of earth depends upon the peace of heaven. And that in order to experience peace on earth, the peace of heaven has to descend onto the earth. And the victory against the powers that that, um, that that cause war on earth, that victory has to be established not just on earth, but in heaven. Heaven has to come down to bring the peace on earth. And so more than they knew on that day, Jesus was coming to bring the peace of heaven to the earth. And on Friday, he was going to overcome the the forces of evil. On Friday, he was going to overcome Satan, the great accuser. He was going to overcome the grave. He was going to overcome death so that peace on earth could be established. The peace of heaven was coming to earth that very week and they were all caught up in the story in a way they didn't even realize. So they were giving him everything. They were praising him in truth and they were also trusting in him for their salvation. John 12 records a little bit more of the story of them singing not just blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord and glory um, to, in the highest peace on, in heaven. Uh, John 12 also sings Hosanna. And you've, you're probably familiar with that as you think about Palm Sunday. When you think about Palm Sunday, you think about palm trees and the word Hosanna. Well, neither palm trees nor Hosanna show up in Luke's account. But in John's account, it's very clear that the people are not just putting their clothes down in the dirt, they're spreading palm trees down. And they're singing Hosanna, Hosanna, which translates essentially to Lord, save us. It's just a cry for salvation. And they're trusting in Him as their only source of salvation. But the palm trees, too, represent salvation. Because the palm trees became an important emblem in the nation of Israel during the Maccabean revolt that, that, that gave this small crack in the door of hope that the Jews could actually stand against the evil oppressive powers from outside on their own. And the Jews Jews actually hoped that they would have some level of independence, some level of, of freedom from Rome in the Maccabean Revolt. And so the symbol of the palm branches coming back was the symbol for this nationalistic desire for peace, for shalom that God had promised. And they saw Jesus is bringing it in a way that the Maccabean period never did. Jesus is bringing it in a full way, in a final way. That's where the palm trees come from. And so the king enters into his home country and no walls fall down. No, there, there's no armed conflict as he's walking in on this donkey. There's no lives lost as he arrives at the gate. He's just welcomed in to the city as another traveler entering into the city. But everybody in town knows there's something going on with this guy. And this is the week of the Passover. So this is a Sunday. The Passover is on Saturday. The whole week is filled with extra people coming into town and extra uh, things going on surrounding the beginning of the Passover season in Jerusalem. And so Jesus has made news all over the city. Everybody knows he's there. Everybody knew this happened. You don't walk into ancient Jerusalem with people singing and shouting and calling you the king at the top of your lungs without other people in town noticing. The word of Jesus had spread. In fact, the crowd seems to be so large that, depending on the different gospel accounts, most of the people are, or there's a big group of people that are coming down the hill with Jesus, but then there's also a big group of people that are coming out of the city to greet Jesus. So there's a lot of people. Some came with him, some met him outside the city, all there to worship and praise him as king. And what does he do? This this is where it gets weird. This is where it gets a little surprising. Because people are singing over Jesus, Blessed are you, the king, who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us. Save us, Jesus. And what is Jesus doing? Verse 41, he's crying. He's weeping. As as he enters into the city, as he catches a glimpse of Jerusalem, as he's coming down the hill, verse 41, he enters the temple, or sorry, verse 41, he drew near and saw the city and he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. He's saying, you're singing about peace and you don't fully understand what you're singing about. You don't understand what peace requires yet. So he's weeping over the people He's weeping over the city. But now these things are hidden from your eyes. Verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is saying they're not recognizing. They're not really recognizing. As a city, as the whole, what this peace is all about. They're not really recognizing who's visiting them right now. The time of your visitation, that means the king is showing up to visit the city of Jerusalem and the king is weeping over Jerusalem because he recognizes they don't get it. Jesus is weeping not because he's about to die, although he is, and it's going to be terrible, and it's going to be traumatic, but Jesus is weeping because these people are going to be lost. And their time is running out. And their time is that day. That day is the day of salvation for them. That's why he says, I, it would that you, even you, today would recognize who's really in front of you, who's really walking into the city gates. But he's weeping because he knows they don't get it and they don't see it. Second Peter says, the Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promises. He's patient because he doesn't want that anyone should perish, but he wants all to come to repentance. That's why Jesus is crying, because he's recognizing his chosen people, Israel. They rejected him time after time after time after time. God and and Israel, they got some history. There's a whole lot of blessing and provision and a whole lot of rejection bound up in that story where the nation of Israel rejected God the king for the sake of a human king. They rejected trust in God the king and made alliances with human kings. They rejected God the king and the source of their worship, and they went after idols time after time after time again. And every time, God brought another opportunity for the nation to be restored. And here's Jesus, their last opportunity. Recognize Jesus, the Son of God, and the the Son of David. The king of Israel, he's here. Recognize him. And they don't. And it feels like some people do. But Jesus knows that there are people that are celebrating on the streets of Jerusalem that day that will be celebrating his crucifixion only a few days into the future. And so he's weeping. Not for his pain, but for the lostness of the city. We see Jesus' emotion here, and we see... That Jesus, as God and as man, cares and feels deeply. We say in Scripture that God is a God of love. We, we say that, that we believe that. But do we really see that and, and engage with that? Jesus identifies himself in Matthew 11 as the one who is gentle and lowly in heart. God identifies himself as the one who is near to the brokenhearted in Psalm 34 and saves the crushed in spirit. Jesus is weeping for the lost. And he still weeps for the lost. And you don't think Jesus is concerned about the circumstances of our day that look so terrible. And back to, back to Ukraine and Russia, you don't think Jesus cares about that? I believe that God the Father weeps over those that perish even today. But... But Jesus has established a plan. He weeps not because there's nothing that can be done, but he weeps because what has been done is being ignored. He weeps because he's going to the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of Jerusalem, and many that are in Jerusalem that day will miss it. And then he comes into his house in verse 45. He enters the temple. And he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they didn't find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on the words. Jesus, this was not the first time he showed up in the temple. The first time is actually Luke 2. First time Jesus comes into the temple, he doesn't walk in, he's carried in by his mother. And his mother comes in and, and Simeon is there as Jesus is being dedicated at the temple. And Simeon says, this is a light for revelation for the Gentiles. And this is the glory of Israel. This child, that's what Simeon sees. The next time we see Jesus in the the temple is a few years later. He's 12 years old, and he gets left behind at the Passover because he wants to stay and chat about the law with the teachers and the scribes. And he says, didn't you think, he says to his mother, didn't you think I would be in my father's house? And we know from the point that Jesus is, is 12, which is two decades before this event, he called this his father's house. This is his house. This is his place where the presence of God has fully dwelt. But Jesus, Jesus is the new revelation of the temple. Because the first time, this is not the first time that Jesus caused a ruckus in the temple. You have Jesus the infant entering into um, the temple in Luke 2. You have the age 12 Jesus not long after that. And then in John 2, at the very beginning of his public ministry, he does the same thing he does in this passage. Each of the Gospels record Jesus driving people out of the temple. But he did it twice both at the beginning of his ministry and at the very end of his ministry. And at the beginning of his ministry, you see it in John 2, he is establishing his authority, his claim over his house. And here he is at the very end, making it clear, you guys have missed the point of all of this. Because those that were selling in the temple, they were oppressing the poor. They were, use, they were manipulating the law of God and misusing the decree of God to take advantage of the poor in their midst. And and this area where they were selling was actually the area that was intended for the Gentiles to come in and observe, and observe and to learn and to hear about the God Yahweh, the God of Israel. And in this very section, they were not just not letting the Gentiles in, but they were taking advantage of the Jewish poor. And Jesus is driving them out, saying, quoting two scriptures, both Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7, to say, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So then what, what do we do in response to this Jesus that has so much depth? The king, the highest of highs, entering in in this moment of celebration down to this incredible emotional turmoil of weeping over his people uh, and then over to this, this what feels like this angry display where the disciples say, you remember that verse that says the zeal for the house of the Lord will, will, um, will ignite him? That, that is what Jesus is doing here. He is zealous for the house of the Lord. And so Jesus, as fully God and fully man, is, is being honored as king, weeping for the loss, and angry at the misuse of the king's decree. All in one episode here. All of this happens in the same day, and all is meant to show us the king is here. You know the other thing that John that John two tells us about Jesus in their entering into the temple. He says this temple will be destroyed. And I will rebuild it in three days. And they laugh at him. And they say, well, what what are you talking about? This temple took so many years to build. And Jesus right there, in a way that they missed at the time that his disciples would see later, he just said, I'm the temple. Because what was the, the temple there for? For The presence of God, first the tabernacle and then the temple, so that the presence of God could dwell in the midst of the people. Because what was lost in Eden was being reestablished in the wilderness. The presence of God in a, temp- in a, in a tent in the tabernacle in the wilderness. And then in the, the presence of God among the people in the temple in Jerusalem. But then Jesus, Jesus is God made flesh The presence of God there with the people. And then Jesus also is the one that says, it's better for you that I go away. Why? Because there's a new revelation of the presence of God to where the presence of God now comes in the Holy Spirit to indwell those who name the name of Jesus. So what do we do with all of this? How do we respond to this king who has come and has brought himself to us so that we might be with him? A few things. Like the disciples, we come ready to lay down everything before him. We come ready to give it our all for the sake of following him. We hold nothing back. We give up the shirt on our back for the sake of his kingdom and his growth. And there's many... I have a a guy that lives in my house who told me yesterday, well... I guess it's a good thing I bought so many clothes since I've been in the, in the U.S. because my parents are giving away all my clothes now. And he said, it's, I guess there's something that I can, I can do because my clothes are going to Ukrainian refugees right now. And I thought, that, that's, what, that's what we're all called to, right? Shirt off of our back for the sake of the service of the least of these, for the sake of the kingdom of God willing to offer anything and everything to open our homes, to open our dining tables, to open our closets for the sake of serving our king by serving the people who he loves. And as we praise him, we praise his authority as king, we praise the peace that he achieves, we praise the salvation, and we call out, Hosanna, save us! Just like the people, the disciples, are using some really good theology and some good biblical insight in the way they're worshiping him, so we too should recognize with gratitude the many gifts he gives us every single day. That's how you respond to the king. You give him everything, and you sure do recognize and praise him when he gives you such great gifts as God has given us. So there's both the loyalty we have to him and the gratitude we show to him. But then Jesus entering into the temple shows us that the best way to respond to Jesus is to, is to open ourselves up to the movement of his presence and leadership over our lives. That when we respond to Jesus, it's not just about responding the first time. That that is the point of salvation. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Boom. We are saved by God revealing himself through Christ and God and Jesus paying the penalty for our sins. When we receive that, we are saved. But now, the presence of God dwells in you. If you have been saved by the blood of Christ, the presence of God has entered into you through the Holy Spirit. And now we can receive comfort for the tears that we shed by the God who has given, who has shed tears for the lost. And now we can receive the the fullness of what it means to live as obedient, as obedient sons and daughters, and as obedient servants of the King. So I'm gonna ask the team to to come up here. But before we sing, I'm gonna ask you: what are you willing to do today? In response to this king who has come to you, are you willing to give everything? Are you willing to praise him in gratitude for what he's already given to you? And are you willing to walk in the fullness of his guidance each and every day? To recognize that when Jesus came into the temple, And he claimed it as his father's house, as a house of prayer. Jesus was establishing his authority over the temple. And therefore, he has the right to then give the Spirit of God to those who receive him. So that we might say that we are the temples. That we are a a royal priesthood, a holy nation, being built together into the dwelling place of God. So we're going to sing here. And we're going to proclaim that the Spirit of God is here, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ's done. And now as we leave this place today, we're going to recognize that we are Christ's ambassadors. And there's something that He has to do, something that He is wanting to do through you and through us and through us as a body on a mission. And are we ready? Are we ready to respond to the call of Christ and to live out even in the darkest days, that we might be the light that sinners see to respond to the salvation of Jesus. Let's stand and sing. because we have accomplished nothing to our salvation but our own sinfulness, which required payment and salvation. But not because of what we have done, what Christ has done. We can can sing. We can celebrate. And we can rejoice. And so, Father, I pray that every heart in this room and those watching on a screen will leave with hearts full of hope, And peace that is established through you. And joy. Joy in the journey of following after you. Father, you have something that you are doing in our midst. And we see it. We see that you are moving in people. We see that you are bringing people to us. We see that you are growing and and maturing people in our families and in our midst, and we rejoice for that. But Father, beyond what you're doing here in this community of Fellowship Bible Church, you're doing something in this city, in this nation, and in this world. And Father, we long to see it and understand it more deeply, but for now, we trust, we trust that you are moving and you are building your kingdom. And Father, give us the wisdom to speak up when you call us to. Give us the words to say. and Give us the hearts to love and to serve. Father, I praise you for the kindness of those that are opening their doors to serve in this latest global crisis. May your church always, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us with gentleness and with fear. Father, send us out in peace this morning because we recognize you have done great things in us. And we praise you, Christ Jesus. Amen. Receive the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.